Hello, and welcome again to the UATX podcast. On the call this week, we have Corin Wagon, who has just successfully completed his PhD defense in organic chemistry from the University of Harvard. Congratulations, doctor. In this conversation, we go across a number of hot takes, something that I'm trying to incorporate a little bit more into my podcasts. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I know I certainly did. I thank Corin for his time. So now, on with the show. Good. Welcome to episode seven, I think. We're in seventh heaven, and we've got our guest today, Corin Wagon, who is joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Super excited to chat with him. He has successfully, or well, he has defended it. We don't know if it's successful. Do we know if it's successful yet? It's successful. Yeah, it's successful. Oh, congratulations. Uh, for those who have, I mean, there's a few people who have gone through the PhD process. I just spoke recently with Cassandra. She's embarking on that journey. What, talk, us through, talk us through that journey. Maybe start with the defense and then work yourself backwards to the uh, to where you want to be. Yeah, so essentially how it works, and I can speak mainly to natural sciences, so I just defended a PhD in chemistry. So yeah. you do a lot of research over the course of your PhD, so that's the, by far the main component. Um, and then essentially you write it all up into a big document. You give an hour-long presentation to a committee of professors, um, and then you have a private sort of closed-door Q&A, just you and, in my case, three of them. Um, and yeah. essentially you have to defend your work against their scrutiny, um, and if you satisfy them then you get your phd otherwise they can make you redo it or just fail you altogether Oof. um and i imagine it's kind of a uh, it's a it it's like when i th- it was a presentation is it like a ted talk or are you sort of like what does uh, it's it look actually like youtube but it, so it's like an hour long so it's it's in some ways a very challenging talk because you're supposed to at once like impress your committee who are like experts in their field, but also you have like your friends and parents there sometimes. Um, So you're sort of trying to juggle the balance between being coherent to a non-expert audience while also not seeming stupid. Um, Yeah. So in my case, I presented like three different projects um, and gave like 20 minutes to each. So. And glad, glad was it. and, And did you enjoy it? I guess would be my only real question. You know, I actually don't really have any like memories. <laughs> I sort of like just was in the moment. I, I, I don't really remember much of actually giving the talk, but it, it wasn't bad. I mean, it was, it was nice. A lot of people came. Um, I'm pretty That's proud it. of the work I did. So it's exciting to get to tell people about it. And for most of the non-scientists in my life, that's like the first and last time they'll really get to see me present on it all. So it was, it was, yeah. it was special. Well, I mean, I'm very proud of, you know, and everyone I know who's gone through the process of becoming a, uh, doing their PhD. It's a lot, it's a long journey. It's an arduous journey. And uh, I'm sure there are plenty of times where you were not 100% certain that this was the path to take. So congratulations yeah. on finishing it. Um, Thanks. And I guess technically you're now a fully fledged scientist, which is, maybe it's different in Australia, but when I grew up, like, being a scientist, it was kind of up there with, when you're a kid, you think there's got to be more scientists out there than there actually are. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, because, you know, I guess maybe you're in school and you're like, what am I going to be? Well, here's the subjects. I could be a historian. I could be a scientist. Maybe I can be like what my dad does or a police officer or what I see on TV. Um, yeah. So now you're an actual scientist. And I think that we, everyone sort of has an understanding of it, but like, maybe talk about, tell me a little bit about your decision. Like, do you see yourself as a scientist and sort of why did you decide to become one? Well, 
Yeah, so that's a, that's an interesting question. And actually, I guess this is the place for hot takes, given that this is the UATX podcast. So this one hot take is that I've been calling myself a scientist to people since about year two or three of my PhD, like okay. since I've been a full-time researcher. Because I think, you know, in many ways, we call a graduate school school. But in, in sciences, I think it really is more like an entry-level job in the science yeah. industry. Um, you don't like you don't really take classes. You don't really teach. You mostly just do science. And yeah. you like it's sort of like your first year at a big law firm or your first year at Goldman. You know, you work really hard. Yeah. You do a lot of sort of boring work. You like slog through stuff. But then when you leave your PhD, you immediately get hired, usually into like a pretty good job, like sort of a second tier, like office job by corporate standards. So I really think it makes sense to think of that as like, you maybe there's a year or two of school in graduate school, but there's also sort of a year or two of just what in any other industry would be an entry level scientist position. And you're the people that actually like graduate students are the people who do all of the science that wins Nobel prizes and mm. gets published. Like professors don't actually do any work. I mean, they, they do a lot, but they don't do any lab work more or less. So. Was it a big surprise when you went to graduate school how different universities are as institutions than an outsider's view or someone who's only gone to undergraduate? Um, so I went to MIT for my undergraduate and was pretty involved in research. So I knew I wanted to do research pretty quickly. Um, so I think a lot of what I learned there was like trying to get a sense for the culture and context of like academic research. So it wasn't a surprise in graduate school, but it definitely is a weird yeah. world. That took some getting used to, like after high school. Yeah, like it's and a, that was my experience. I spent a little bit of time working for a blockchain innovation think tank outside of a university, and because you'd walk around and you'd be like, "How is this place so big? And how do they have so many staff? And why do these professors keep saying that they're always busy?" Because, like, dude, I'm doing I'm the same classes that you're in, like, <laughs> and I've got plenty of time. Like, what the fuck are you doing all day? Turns yeah. out that teaching a bunch of nineteen-year-olds is like only like five percent of their time, um, and not, sometimes only five percent of their uh, uh, interest as well, or less. Or less. <laughs> sometimes it's into yeah. a negative space. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I yeah, mean, that's I, weird. Because yeah. you kind yeah, of think I mean, of it's going to be like high school in some ways. Yeah, in some sense, like the, the research university, right? It's like a lab. There's a school. There's like a sports franchise. There's like a real estate investment office, all sort of like bundled together as a nonprofit, right? Like it, it's a derivative yeah. to make anyone proud. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and fun like, Yeah, it's tax free. It's genius, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just slap on university. It's the new uh, proprietary limited. Um, yeah, exactly. I feel like we've just jumped in a little bit too early into the uh, into your research and your science, but only because oh, it's so fresh and so interesting. Let's drive back a little bit. Um, tell me about. I know you have a brother. I don't know anything else about your family, but I know that you grew up in Austin. So, yeah. science family, or are you a heretic, or um... <laughs> uh, well, in some sense. So, my family's from New Mexico originally, so I was actually born there, um, and then they moved to Austin for work. First Houston, then Austin. Um, in 2000, so when I was two. Hmm. Um, yeah, so my dad is a pastor, so he went to Bible college, um, yep. but to pay the bills, he also is in software. So he has a small software company. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom throughout my childhood and now is actually just finishing up medical residency. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, so she went back to school um, when I started college, actually. To become a doctor? To become a doctor, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
she's a pretty extraordinary woman. That is, um, you know, because I mean, there are so many people. I mean, I think every smart person at some point has thought, maybe I should become a doctor in the same way that a lot of smart people think maybe I should become a lawyer, particularly right. after like a suit spinging marathon. Um, but I feel like once you've hit like even 23, 24, a lot of thing, people are thinking, have I aged out of this experience? Have I missed yeah. the boat? You know, and you bundle being a uh, doctor with being a, you know, gold medal winning Olympic gymnast or like winning Wimbledon, you know, you think, oh, well, it would have been nice if I'd thought about this earlier, but this hasn't really happened. So that's, so that's very interesting. And so I'm get so, so obviously a high interest in, so, okay. So you've got a family, let me just prove me if I'm wrong. You've got a family that is from the very little information that you've given me, very interested in the importance of like education um, and willing to do things that are not heteronormative. Yeah, I think so. So I was homeschooled um, through fifth grade. So like my parents are very interested in teaching me. So we, you know, we did like lots of world history, like languages, like math, all sorts of stuff. Um, So I think big fans of education. I think my parents also, my dad in particular is like a little bit like generically sort of skeptical of institutions. So I think he really didn't enjoy his own schooling. Um, And so, you know, not a, not a big hoop jumper. Um, no. Um, I, and then, so I guess you get to, you go, so, okay. Um, you're the second person I know in the cohort who was homeschooled. Yeah. Um, it seems to me, like when I first heard about homeschooling, I was always a big skeptic, as many people are, but right. that's an opinion held with very little information. And I also think that I was someone who enjoyed high school. It would hard be it'd be hard for me not to. I didn't go to like when I like a bad high school. I yeah, was yeah, yeah. very physically developed at a very young age, um, so that helps. Um, I was reasonably intelligent, so and I so I didn't really find the academic side of things or the social things super difficult. So I, I sort of swam through it. So I had a positive experience of it, but you know, facts don't care about your feelings. It seems to me that homeschooling. Uh, seems to have some really positive impacts on it. And I'm just wondering as someone who's, uh, you know, I know N equals one, but you know, what was your experience like? Yeah, so it was great. Um, I think, so I got to be pretty self-directed. Um, so I remember in yeah. second grade, I got like all my assignments for the month and I got to like choose how I did them. So I'd like try to work hard during the week and give myself Fridays off and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, which was just a fun amount of freedom to have as a second grader. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was like a sort of a loser as a kid. I like, really liked reading. So I was really into like military history. So I had all these like Civil War history cool. books I would read. Um, yeah. So, you know, homeschooling gave me the flexibility or I guess gave my family the flexibility to sort of just lean into that, like just to, yeah. I don't know, read, do weird little like hobbies and field trips and stuff. Um, yeah. I think it started to get, you know, so there's the homeschoolers who like homeschool for elementary school when you're like teaching yeah. your childlike arithmetic and yeah. then there's this sort of like k through 12 homeschool where at some point you're having to like self-study like calculus and all this yeah. like stuff and so i think for at least me there's started to be a point 
where like my own ability to teach myself, like just the discipline was tough. Like I, I really yeah. sucked at like practicing math. Like I liked reading about it, but I, I remember when I started going to public school in sixth grade, it was sort of a rude awakening. Like, oh, like I'm really, really slow at doing math because I've never been forced to like do it over and over again, like on a homework. So interesting. yeah, I think there's some pros and cons and definitely higher variance like homeschooling, but it, it, it fit my personality pretty well, at least in elementary school. Nice. I mean, my, my, at, at primary, at, I, we call it primary school, but I guess elementary school. Um, yeah. My main, my, my, my main thing I remember about uh, homeschooling, there's one kid in my year level, his family were very, very uh, keen snow sports enthusiasts. In fact, his older brother went to the Olympics uh, for snowboarding, um, which it, like, but it's for Australia. So it's kind of, yeah. uh, you know, you get that Oceania ticket to the, um, to the, uh, to the big game. Uh, but they used to take like third term off and live in the mountains for, you know, the eight, 10 weeks. They used to go to like the local school and they were like, actually, no, this is a complete waste of time. We're going to go homeschooling, which for them involved for uh, Mitch. He didn't do any school for like seven and a half weeks. And then they came back from the mountains and he like locked himself in the room and did like a hundred, like just like ground out like a hundred maths worksheets um, on like Saturday and Sunday. Comes to school on Monday, start of turn four. He said, "All right, we are going to have like the Australian like, like one of like the Wells Fargo equivalent like uh, nationwide maths challenge." Guess who scores in like the top like point one percent? Can you like? Can you imagine how embarrassed the school is when they have to get him up on stage? He hasn't been at the school for like a term, <laughs> and you're like, he's actually done better than all of you. The fact that like the less we teach you, the actually higher you guys perform. Um, so yeah, yeah Mitch, Mitch. I mean, he was a smart kid. Um, he had a. He would have been one of the lowest conscientiousness people I think I've ever met. Like strikingly so, um, and uh, you know, the, like we, I went to a school where like they they, they they had a fair bit of like intellectual sherpadom. I would describe it like they will get you by the end of your school to the academic results you need right. by hook or by crook. Like we're going to lift you and carry you up that fucking mountain, you know, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever it might be. But like Mitch was the kind of guy who would like strap himself to the tree at the bottom. Be like, "There's, I just won't do it." You know, I I just would rather look out the window. And he was a smart kid, but um, yeah, I, I mean, what he's doing now. Um, it strikes me that like the sort of person who can lock himself in a room and do like hundreds of like worksheets in a short period of time is like an. I guess if you have that much determination, maybe then the like structure of school is less important. You know, like. Part of the reason you like have a routine is so you like get in the habit of doing things you don't yeah. want to do. And if you're just the sort of outlier who can be like, no, I'm going to sit at this desk for 16 hours and just do like factoring polynomials or whatever, then yeah. maybe you don't need that. It's also surprising how little you do. Um, and that there's a, that if you actually like gathered all, you know, the resources together and said, you know, if you and I had to sit through like a grade five, do a grade five maths. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's different because we know what we're doing and we're not learning. Yeah, we're, like, yeah. rep- but you, we could, like two hours could go through the entire year's curriculum um, and just speed through it. So there's a huge, there's a lot there. But um, 
you get to you get to I mean I find it so interesting you get to the end of school yep. you decide to go to college uh, MIT first choice no my first choice is actually Stanford but I didn't get in and my girlfriend had committed to Wellesley so sort of for two reasons like East Coast was the place to be yeah and how was it it was good so I actually a funny story from my life is that I remember at 16 or 15 I told a friend I was like he was going to go to MIT and I was like, man, like, don't do that. The people there are super weird. Like you're going to have no friends. Like it's going to be miserable. They're all like computer like right. robot nerds. Um, and so then I, of course, when two years later, I found myself committing to MIT and I was like, oh no, what am I doing? Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it turned out okay. MIT is actually like a very libertarian place in some ways. Yeah. Um, like it's a very, I'd say a disordered school in a way that like the IVs seem like much more sort of ordered and regimented. Um, yeah. And like, I think English like institutions as well, although I don't have any firsthand experience there. Like at MIT, you can pretty much do whatever you want as long as you like turn in your homeworks. Like there's, you can paint your walls. You know, we like cooked for ourselves. We didn't have a meal plan. We like, I don't know, like I roasted coffee outside my dorm as an undergraduate using a device that looked sort of like an IED and like no one even asked me questions. Like you can no. pretty much get away with anything. How do, tell me about the coffee story. Like, I mean, it feels like you're very much following the, uh, the scientific method. Like, first off, I mean, coffee's cheap-ish, cheap enough for you to not ju have to justify running your own operation. Um, well, it depends on how, like, snobby you are, I guess. So how yeah, pretentious guess, you want to yeah. be. So I did a lot of, like, espresso tastings in high school and, like, got really into it. So my parents have been roasting coffee for a little while. And so you can actually, it's about three times cheaper to buy green beans and roast them yourself as yeah. opposed to like buying pre-roasted beans. And when you're drinking really nice coffee, that like makes a difference. Um, so it's like seven bucks a pound versus like 20 plus dollars a pound. Yeah. Um, and then also it stays fresher. Um, so like coffee, a lot of people don't know this, but like if you want like the really best coffee, you want to be like within two weeks of roasting. Um, otherwise yeah. you like lose the CO2. So and it's just sort of fun. Like it just is sort of a little, like you get to control more of the process. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, I mean, I remember the first time that I came from a tea drinking family. Uh, my mom's nice. British. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, they still haven't really gotten over that like industrial revolution. Like, uh, you know, you can now drink the tap water without dying. Um, <laughs> so, so, but then I got onto coffee and I always used to think of when people talking about like coffee flavors, I kind of thought in the same world, like, when people talk about wine tasting and I'm like, this is all just one big game that you guys are playing with one another. Like yeah. coffee tastes like coffee and sometimes it tastes a bit bitter and sometimes it doesn't, but you're, it's a unidimensional flavor profile. Yeah. And yeah. then someone will be like, Hey, taste this. And you're like that first moment where you're like, okay, that is a little bit like strawberry. Yeah. And it's not like eating a strawberry. Like, I think that's the top thing where you're, you know, in the same way when people take nootropics and they think they're going to have like the limitless experience, but all that yeah. happens is that they like sleep slightly better, you know, like, um, and then once you have it, you then, uh, it just then says, okay, I can sort of see where, uh, where this is going and then sort of just go and enjoy it. What, what's your uh, method now? Yeah, so I'm kind of a roaster. So we roast pretty quickly. Uh, like we roast every few weeks or so, like to keep it fresh. Yeah. Um, 
I usually do like a Kalita wave, like a pour over. So I do that for my wife and I every morning. Um, Lovely. It works. It's nice. I mean, I guess you need it now with, with, with the two young kids. I mean, yeah, I, we used to take a day off a week or two days off a week. So we'd take Tuesdays and Thursdays off to not get addicted. But we, I don't think we've done that once since the, since the second baby was born. It's no. <laughs> every morning. Nice. Um, it's interesting what you uh, talk about when you talk about MIT, about how it had a bit of a libertarian flair. I get the impression that particularly in the US, like schools really do have like personalities. And yeah. I found what was so, I, what I find so interesting is that particularly with these like Ivy schools, it seems that there's such a high emphasis to succeed and that um, what success looks like is very narrowly defined. Um, and there's a lot of people who are very attracted to achieving the goal in front of them. Um, and without real sort of regard to, um, the, whether it all fits together versus when I think of MIT, I think of people who are just like, like, I just really like computers and this is a great place to learn more about computers and maybe I'll go become a quant or maybe I'll just go and write like some like funky little code that'll allow me, you know, to get stuff sorted out. Am I sort of offline there? No, I think you're right. I mean, I think something that MIT does just by virtue of being a specialized school is that like you have to sort of know what you want to do when you're applying. So like, you know, if you go to Harvard, you can be like on the fence about anything. So you can be like, oh, maybe I'll do cell biology. Maybe I'll do ancient history. Maybe I'll study literature. But if you commit to MIT, you're pretty much committing to a technical discipline of one form or another, which I think just sort of for like selection bias means that you have people who are like much more certain about what they want to do with their lives than at other schools. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's like pretty much all of your friends, like, know they're going to be some sort of engineer or another. And actually like science is pretty rare at MIT, relatively speaking, like almost everyone is on the engineering track. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. And it's interesting. I think a lot of people just in general, like I see this with Harvard undergraduates a lot, I think, they're just sort of like, they don't have a super big direction. And so there's some sort of like insecurity or like what they want to do, which I think is what pushes so many people to do sort of like safe options, like, you know, finance or consulting. Not that there's anything wrong with those. I don't have, I'm not going to go on a tirade against, I think there's a lot of value there, but like, there's also like, it's a safe, it's sort of a socially safe, like, you know, that that's successful. And so if you don't know what to do, you can at least do something like that's people are going to smile yeah. at. Well, I remember reading Andrew Yang's book and he talked about the uh, six paths to the six destinations. And it's like, if you go to one of the, uh, you know, one of the top schools, yeah, you know, it's something about like 80 to 90% of people go into law, finance, medicine, tech slash engineering, academia. There's another one. Consulting. Yeah, that sounds right. And then they end up in LA, San Fran, New York, Washington, New York, Boston. Um, oh no, one of them's off and one of them's Chicago, I think. I think LA, it's New York twice. DC, New York, Chicago, Maybe. Boston. That'd be it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's always going to be some people going to like architecture. There's going to be some people going, like a few people going to the media, a few people going to like, um, you know, our, our, our dear friend Andrew here ended up in the shipping for a 
and industrial tools for a while before deciding to go to law school. So he's the, pro- the prodigal son has returned to the promised land. Uh, right. But it's um, Andrew was a big his whole co- comment was that there's so much of like. And he's like a change to different schools. Like MIT, more people go into engineering. If you go to Hopkins, there's probably more people go to medicine, but it seems to be like right, right, more, right. a core, func- core function. And he talks about how there's this real element of slurping out all these talented kids from around the country and then pushing them all into six spaces, um, both in a like career sense, but also in a location sense. Um, so, I mean, you live in Boston now, Cambridge, and that's, that's Brain City. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, with all the attended benefits and uh, ups and downs, I guess. I haven't been to Boston, so I, I, I can't comment. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange place, but it definitely is, like, especially in, like, the city, it's a bunch of transients, you know? So people rarely stay here for more than five years. There's a ton mm-hmm. of people who, like, come and go. Um, and then there's also just a, a ridiculous excess of super talented people so i i serve on a church setup team which like before mm-hmm. church will like go put out chairs and stuff and it was a few years back when we realized that everyone on like the eight person setup team had like an ivy league affiliation of one sort like everyone yeah. had been to school like undergrad or graduate school at like harvard yale or princeton um yeah. it's, real it's just ridiculous yeah yeah so um, I, I don't like it's just it's not real life you know it's a it's a bubble <laughs> yeah uh, we are on the UATVOX podcast. Before we t- talk about your time at Harvard, um, your hot take on MIT or college admissions? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think a hot take on MIT is just that, like, it should be weirder. Like, that MIT should lean into the, like, hands-on sort of, like, blue-collar side of engineering. And I think there's been a push at MIT to like make it to, to sort of shore up its weaknesses relative to other sort of top universities. So they're trying to push humanities and like um, sort of common like curriculum much more on students and like make the dorms more normal and less sort of like anarchic. Um, yeah. And I think it's just good that there's a diversity of like, I don't know, US schools. Um, and that MIT's history yeah. is super, like it used to be super strange. So like they'd be working in the forges all day, like, be tons of practical internships they wouldn't like learn how to spell or anything and I, I just sort of think that a little bit more in that direction would be probably maybe not what the administrators think is best but like net good for the country like if there was just a weirder MIT that was more dissimilar from like the Ivies. Well it's interesting how like engineering has really accelerated as a prestige uh, profession like my understanding is like 100 years most engineers were trained in the army and then you'd go to like tech school to learn how to become an engineer. And yeah. it was kind of like, we're a working class family, but like Johnny's really smart and he's got to get off the tools and he's going to learn how to like build it, you know. Um, but it wasn't a prestige career. And it's similar in some ways, like being a journalist has gone from being a, you know, like a, yeah, like a, like a real sort of, how would I describe being a journalist like a hundred years ago? Working, working, uh, not working. It's like a smart kid uh, who just gets around and pumps That's out sort of rough and tumble. Yeah. 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 And I think we've moved away a little bit from like the Thomas Edison, like 
blowing things up all the time, sort of like very practical engineering. Yeah. A little bit more towards the like I work at Google, like and commute in and my Tesla sort of engineering. And I don't I don't I mean those people are great. I don't have anything against them. But I yeah. I don't know. There's something to be said for like the decline of physical innovation as opposed to like digital innovation in the US yeah. and the world more broadly. Um and I think you know, and MIT the pushback on that a little bit would be really cool. Uh, maybe in that lot sense, a comment on um, the latest physical innovation, the Vision Pro. Yeah. Seen it? Used it? I've seen pictures of it. I've never used it. Um, I've never used any like AR, VR headset. Actually, I'd love to. Uh, I mean, it, it's cool. It's tough to know. Like, I don't know. Is this going to be the next iPhone or is this going to be the next Google Glass? It's not easy to yeah. say. Um, well, it looks like one, one more than the other. Um, I, I think what you said was quite interesting about the how much this being a digital uh, innovation versus a physical innovation. And my friend was like, one of the things that people love to say without giving them much conscious thought is, wow, we live in the most innovative time of, and in some ways that's true. But my friend was like, if you were a um, time traveling milk delivery man, and you were like, we're a milkman in like 1900, 1950, and 2000. The, you know, 1900, you are like with ice boxes, you've got a horse, a cart, um, yeah. you've got a map you can't read. And then all of a sudden you go in 1950, fully refrigerated, drives. It's, you know, it, it, it you're like, this is crazy. It's got lighting um, that you can have on demand. And in 2000 or even like 2020, the innovation is now like maybe it's electric, but probably not. And in 2000, yeah. definitely not. But like, you know, yeah, have like a sound system in there and like a map. But like the innovation curve is like there now, you know, and that's a job that, you know, you think, okay, so we've had a bunch of innovation, but all that progress is at the early end. Um, and how much progress have we had in the last period of time? Like the difference between the iPhone 5 and the iPhone 15, better battery, better camera, more processing power, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, so this is sort of the Peter Thiel take, right? That we used to innovate in the world of atoms. Now we just innovate in the world of bits. Okay. Um, you know, we, we wanted flying cars, but we got 140 characters. Um, that's his quote. And I, I mean, I think that there's definitely truth to that. And like that there's probably to the extent that there's low hanging fruit, regulatory issues aside, there's probably a lot fewer people thinking about like transportation or sort of like these innovations than like social media, you know, so probably you're like compared to advantages in like very mundane things from a like startup perspective. But at the same time, it feels like I don't know, like if you look at the milkmaid example, it does seem underwhelming. But here we are like sitting across the country, talking to each other in real time on a like screen that's going to record everything we say and we can automatically transcribe it using AI. So I don't want to like discount the presence innovations too much, you know? <laughs> Very true. Uh, one thing I, before we talk about Harvard, I find uh, I'd like to hear your take on this. I remember years ago reading this article about how like, every country, every country wants to have more scientists and people don't yeah. really want to, Less people what become scientists than most governments would like them to do. Unless you live in like, what, Germany? Maybe, you know. Um, 
Like, and, you know, so it's, so they're like, how do we get more, how do we get more scientists? Maybe we can get like Neil deGrasse Tyson to do another tour of all the schools and, you know, hype people up. But one of the comments that they made is that the regulatory environments within schools really brings the attraction out of science. So, for example, they would say, like, in, like, the 80s, or, you know, it, all the science teachers get up there, it's like, okay, let's all go out onto the uh, school oval and blow some stuff up. We'll get, like, the flamethrowers out, and there's a very much sort of, all the kids, like, burning their eyebrows off, and they're like, wow, you know, I'm really interacting with the physical world and doing the experiments. Uh, and now it's like, let's all just watch a DVD of, like, a colour change. And you're like, this is... You're not having that moment of eureka, that moment of discovery, this moment of sort of fun, which you associate with science, which sort of gets you excited about it. Um, thoughts, comments, queries? Yeah. I mean, I wonder how true that is on average. So I definitely was exposed to my fair share of like extremely dangerous things like early on yeah. in my sort of scientific education. So we like... You know, one of my high school teachers once told us, like, it's Halloween, like, I don't want to teach anything today. Like, just go to the stock room, find things together and see who can invent the spookiest reaction. So we were just like lighting random things on fire. We just like got the keys to the school's like chemical cabinet and was just like pouring things together. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> but maybe that's the exception to the rule, right? Like, maybe that's why I'm here. Yeah. So you know, I think that there's like to the extent that safety is like a very quantifiable thing and sort of like excitement and like allure mm. or like sort of unquantifiable. I think it's true in a lot of areas of life that sort of these hard, like you can always point to safety to say like, Oh, we shouldn't do this. It's not safe. And you sort of lose yeah. these like less easily quantifiable goods. Um, yeah. and I think that's a challenge that we face like all over the place. I mean, like when, when I was a kid, like I feel like no adults wore bike helmets and now like everyone wears bike helmets, you know? Yeah. And I don't know if we, if we lose something, from that but if you like look at the maps of how far children are allowed to go generation by generation like that shrinking radius of freedom that people have i think that there's a safety first mindset that contributes to that yeah i mean the one i think about is um ski helmets yeah i remember as a kid i was like you have to wear a ski helmet i remember crying because i i was like i want to wear a beanie like a cool kid and like a <laughs> yeah. legend and and um and now, like, the only people you ever see on a mountain who are not wearing a helmet are people who are, like, either, like, 100 and, yeah. like, and you're like, okay, fair enough. Like, you you know, you, you're still living in the 70s. Um, <laughs> or people who you're like, dude, you have no idea what you're doing. Like, it's, it's good because it's, like, an indicator of, like, avoid that person at all costs because they are <laughs> yeah, a yeah. – and their insurance isn't paying out, <laughs> you know, like, yeah there's or yeah like people who are like obviously like on some sort of substance yeah you know and you're like don't touch Hold me up. like i'm gonna stay over here yeah uh so you had a good time at harvard i mean it, it's you know the, the mythical land um of academia uh good experience bad experience something that you'd learned there that you didn't expect yeah i mean i had a good time at harvard i have no regrets yeah as a graduate student, you only really see one corner of a thing, yeah. you know? So like I was only in the chemistry department, like I've set foot in like four Harvard buildings total. Yeah. I go to the same lab every day. Like I mostly interact with people in my lab. So I don't really know if I have a vibe for like Harvard writ large. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I think c cultural differences in science are less than you might expect simply because like scientists oh. are sort of similar everywhere. Like they all cross pollinate yeah. and they're all sort of like nerds, Yeah, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I don't know like what cultural observations I have about Harvard yeah. in general. I don't feel qualified. Cool. All right. Now time for the hot take section. Um, people have been thinking about the science as a pretty abstract concept until recently. The C word. Lots of people are suddenly experts on science and data and epidemiology based on COVID. Like as someone who was, or, I mean, I'm trying to put the back together. You were in your second year by, by time it happened. So you were self-described as a scientist. Yeah. Like what did you see? Year, but... What did you see? Like, what did you see that was egregious and terrible, both at like an institutional and establishment level, but also as like a general public level? I mean, I think just as it brought, so behavior that really grinds my gears is when someone, yeah. scientists and non-scientists are both guilty of this. When you like make some assertion and then you're like, and don't worry, a study said so. And you're like, okay, cool. You know, and this, this is on like all, <laughs> all sides of the topic, you know, it's like, oh, we ran this study, we tested 30 people and we found that masks like 100% work. And then, yeah. you know, next week, some like some right-wing person's on your Twitter feed being like a new study just disproved masks, you know, yeah. like checkmate. And so it's like, everyone's guilty yeah. of this, you know, it's just. Oh, they'll I, be I, like, which university? And it's like, John Hopkins, it's like, oh. You know, it's like Yu-Gi-Oh, you know, like it's the blue eyes, white dragon of universities. Like take yeah, your yeah, LSE yeah. and like get stuffed with it because that's, you know, because, you know, our N equals one sample size is that's all that matters. just the branding, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I think there's like a disconnect between like, there's an interesting piece in Palladium magazine, uh, which is like a governance futures. Mm -hmm. thing. Uh, there's talking about like sort of the two roles that science takes on. So there's science is sort of this like, questioning like everything's a theory nothing's set in stone sort of this like old school like take no one's word for it like empirical like you know mm. enlightenment science but now like we live in such sort of a technical society so the thinking goes that we also need this role for science where like we want to make decisions based on science but when you make decisions that's sort of the opposite from like a take no one's word from it like i'm going to redo all the experiments myself mode of science so there's like yeah. settled science and unsettled science and the issue that we get is like there's some things that you want to like settle so like you know we don't worry about making decisions based on gravity um no. in a government sense but then there's also times where like we don't want to listen listen to the science because there's no like there's nothing that's really settled to make decisions off of so like the mode of transmission of a disease that we've known about for like a week you know and so in those cases it i think it becomes like listen to the science is sort of like an ill-defined thing because there is no like scientific body of knowledge to draw on there's just like a bunch of random studies and you know after enough studies hopefully we'll figure out what's going on but that's going to take time yeah there's i mean i think there's also this, this well because nuance is sorely lacking in a lot of um discourse i think one thing that could possibly that i heard which i think i can sort of support is that you have to this there should be a disconnect between um the science and the political response to these things, because uh, you know, science should be able to guide decisions. But yeah. the con the non batshit crazy criticism that people can make is that when you're weighing up decisions of amongst on something like COVID, 
um, lives saved is one criteria that should be considered, but it should be it shouldn't be the only decision. I think is the is the whole idea. Um, sort of back to the safetyism thing, you know, like yeah. that can't be your only metric for making every decision. True, um, yeah. and there are sometimes where safety is safety shouldn't never be like entirely disqualified, but perhaps yeah, yeah, yeah. there's other elements that need to be um, taken on board. Um, and we're sort of sort of seeing it at the moment. I've been, my mum's a teacher, so I find it quite interesting to sort of hear about how uh, reading has become such. And this is the other sort of like science things that has been disproven. Teaching kids to read, I thought that was like a settled subject, but it turns oh, out it was wrong for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's the issue with like whether you teach them based on phonics or like based on like word recognition, right? Word, and stuff like that's that. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I imagine part of it is if I'm sitting in like the Capitol building and they're like, people can't read. I'm like, it's like when people say that they can't swim. Like when people say they can't swim, I just assume that they're like butterflies a bit weak. Like <laughs> not that they can't safely propel themselves through water. I'm like, everyone can swim. Everyone can ride a bike. Like not everyone can do a backflip. Not everyone can do tumble turns. Right, right. Not everyone can like pump through, you know, Kafka's metamorphosis in an afternoon and enjoy it. But everyone can read. What do you mean you can't read? Like, how could you get through life with it? Not being able to read is like being blind in some ways that I could consider. So when I, so I kind of discounted. I just because I, why would I? How could I ever meet someone who can't read? Um, yeah. But yeah, that's a that's a major issue. Um. And, you know, as a parent, I mean, is that, I mean, what would, what, do you think about these things or? <laughs> well, I definitely think about teaching my kids to read. <laughs> That's yeah. definitely something that, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a little sympathetic to like people who like teachers being like a little resistant to new modes of education. Like I understand that because every now and then you'll, like read some study, you know, like tell you something that like seems ridiculous. You know, like if you look at the correlation for some things that are like obviously true, they're like very weak, you know, like caffeine makes you less sleepy or like antidepressants make you less depressed. You know, mm -hmm. if you try to prove that with a study, sometimes it's shockingly difficult. So like on the one hand, I, I respect teachers like reticence to just totally switch what they're doing based on like some yeah. like paper somewhere. But the reading thing really seems like ironclad at this point. Like, it seems like there's big, big differences. And that, like, I, I think it was what Alabama or Mississippi recently switched all their, like, the Mississippi miracle. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's, it's super better. So I, I don't know if you can get better proof than that, you know? Yeah. That is a slam dunk. Um, yeah. Why did we can edit this out of it? Like, why did you decide to have children at a historically normal age? Which is an outlier for our uh, outlier for our sad and depraved times. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, so I mean, part of the context is that I've I was married young, so my wife and I got married when we were twenty. Um, yep. So that's like abnormally young in general. But I mean, we've been dating since I was fifteen, so I don't know. It seemed right at some point. Um, yep. And then at some point it just sort of felt right. Like we wanted to have kids, like friends we had who were older than us were having kids and like, they're really cute. I don't know. I think yeah. the same reason everyone wants to have kids. 
I think that maybe there's a lot of reasons people don't want to have kids that we didn't feel so strongly. So like we don't have a house. We didn't really yeah. have much money. Like I was a graduate student and she was in nursing school. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. That's, like, I think they're, so they're not answers. They're like anti-answers. They're the reason <laughs> so, yeah, people these are bad answers. Corn. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. It just, it just feels right. Like, I don't know, kids. So I, I think there's an element of faith that plays into this, you know? So we're both like pretty Christian. And I think it's more normal yeah. in those circles to have like kids and get married a bit younger. Um, like a lot of friends from back home and had kids in their early 20s. Um, they all yeah. seemed happy. And then especially as like you get older, like it seems like it's nice to be to be able to be friends with your kids. Um, so historically, it's more normal where you can have like two generations that are both sort of prime age adults. You know, yeah. like if you're like two decades older than your kids or like two and a half decades older, like when you're 50, they're like 20 or 30. Yeah. You know, and that's just sort of, that's something that's cool. So I'm able to be friends with my parents. Like they're both like in their mid forties. Um, okay. Anyway, like it's, it just feels right. Good. All right. And, and cause I hear all these, you know, it's it's one of those things where, in some ways, it's like as I was congratulating in the past, there has been a um, collapse of birth rates um, with no sort of end in sight. I'm not. I still haven't fully made my mind up whether this is a good thing, a bad thing, but it definitely will impact how uh, societies put yeah. themselves together. Um, and the, the common thing common refrain people always say is like i can't afford to have children um because you know everyone was just balling out of control in like the 12th century um, right and- yeah i mean that seems like a cope to me a little bit not to yeah. put anyone down but if you look at the places in the world where people have a ton of kids it's not like the richest most affluent areas you know the correlation yeah. is exactly oh, opposite yeah yeah and i mean it seems to me like i mean maybe like yeah it's a little bit expensive to have kids but I mean, I also live in the age where I can Amazon a box of diapers to my house and it gets here the next day. Like, that's pretty yeah. nice. Yeah. And the odds of so, your child being like, consumed by a wild animal. Uh, yeah, pretty small. Like an actual wild animal, not like a, yeah. Yeah, so my sense is most of the reasons people don't have kids are like internal. It's like some mixture of like, I think there's the belief that you're supposed to like enjoy your 20s. So like your 20s are for finding yourself or for you. Um, yeah. And I guess I've never... And my wife too, it's just never really felt super strongly that way. We're like, yeah. nah, we're good. Let's just have some kids. Like, yep. um, and I, I think just less like anxious in general. So maybe that comes from like having sort of strong, like convictions or like direction, like worldview wise. Yeah. I mean, my thing, my, my favorite heuristic is always look at the margin. Um, right. and, uh, when I sort of think when people say it's expensive, I think that what you, you sort of touched on it is that the alternative, the substitute for having children, people have a lot more of them now than they may have in the past. So, you know, if you're, if you're in a high, high if you're in a booming uh, birth rate town, you live in Lagos, Nigeria, um, and you're like, we could have a kid or I could buy like, I don't know, I could go to like Paris for a week, you know, um, but you, like, if you're in Lagos, there's no chance to go to Paris. Like you're just going to be sitting out and hanging out in the, um, in Lagos and the things, the choice that you have available to you is narrower. Um, so having a kid grows to the top. Whereas if you're living in the affluent West and you think, oh, maybe I'd like to 
go visit somewhere. Or maybe I would like to, uh, maybe I'd like to live, a, you know, buy, buy something. Or there's just more options out there. I'll try something different. I'll go to grad school, you know, make all these um, different choices that one can have. It pushes yeah. having a child further down the, down the list. And my sense is too that like, so I, I, maybe this is a hot take that like adolescence is less like a developmental phase and more like a state of mind. Um, I think Catherine Boyle has said something similar to this, but essentially like a, a barista at a coffee shop told me like, oh dude, 26 is the new 19. Like, you know, I just sit on my couch and play Legend of Zelda all day, but it's fine because like, you know, I still got a few years to figure everything out. Um, I think humans are just a little bit lazy. And like, if you're just sort of told, like you're expected, you're not expected to like shoulder certain responsibilities until a certain point that like, yeah. it's pretty rare to like voluntarily sort of like go against that. So I, I think for a lot of people, they don't really feel like their life, like the expectation to have kids is there. Like there's just not really any, there's just, it's just not the norm anymore. And so people are like happy not to. Um, Good yeah. And I think too, like there's a social element where like when you see other people who have kids, it like makes you either want to have kids or like feel like it's more like, like you can see yeah. other people doing it. So it seems less scary. Um, yeah. So. I, I think there's, a, there's an aspect of it. Like I often see yeah. like the difference between people who have, who like live in like rural areas. Like I can't really speak of the US because I'm not this experienced, but like especially in like Australia and New Zealand, like, pe yeah, yeah. like the closer you live to like an urban center, the later you have children. And I get it. Like the classic example is like my friends who live in London and for them having a child, like that is the most game. That is like meteor coming out of the sky levels of changing your life because yeah. all of a sudden you're living in like, you know, Finsbury park and you're like going out for drinks on Friday. And then you're going off to like the premier league and then you're getting on the plane, and you go to Paris for the weekend with your girlfriend and you're like, Oh man, this is, this is awesome. And it is awesome. Um, but they're like, if we have a kid, we're going to have to move out of like our one bedroom studio apartment and move out to like Reading and <laughs> say goodbye to like go to the Premier League, say goodbye to like the weekend jaunt to Rome, say goodbye to all that stuff. Whereas if you're living in shit, I don't know, Somerset, you live in the village, you're like, well, if we have a kid, well, we just chuck a few extra like loaves of bread into the um, trolley every uh, every week. It, it, it's a less of a, your lifestyle changes less in certain environments than others, I would say. That's probably true. Yeah, so we've actually benefited from being like some of the few people to have kids in our social circles because like everyone yeah. just comes to us now. So we don't go out for drinks. I never really went out for drinks that much. I really like making cocktails. Yeah. So we just have people over and like, nice. we'll just put the kids down, like let's have some drinks. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of that's true, but a lot of it's also mental. Like we see friends here who like move out of the city when they get married, like, you know, we're going to go buy a house and have kids, but you like also, I don't know, like just pay for an extra bedroom and just stay where you are. If that's within yeah. your, like, you can't do that downtown, but you don't have to move to the boonies. No. So that's it. Uh, very, another uh, very hot take um, is there would be some people and I include I especially include my mother in this situation who feels that it is incompatible that you could be a scientist and a religious person at the same time. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I don't really, I, I get this question a lot and I honestly, like, I don't think about it that much. And I think to me, essentially sure. like 
science is about discovering what's true. You know, like you, you want to understand the world better. Um, and you like do so through science, one of many ways we investigate the world. And if you're like religious, like you obviously believe that that's true as well. Otherwise you wouldn't yeah. believe it. And so they're like, there shouldn't be any conflict. Like if you're learning about the world that God's made, then it like, you're just excited to learn about it. And obviously if you like learn something that comes into conflict, like either the fact you learned is wrong or your beliefs are wrong. Um, but I don't think, I think that there's sort of an anti-science, like definitely a vibe, especially in like the more conservative parts of American Christianity, where like the scientists are like the enemies of religion. But that's always just, I don't think it's like a very reasoned belief. Because like what you're really saying when you do that is either like all the science is made up and they're just making it up to disprove you, like to, to like challenge your beliefs. Or like you don't think your beliefs are really true and you're worried that like someone's going to point that out, like to demonstrate it. And like neither like really makes, you know, I, neither of those just seem yeah. super coherent to me. So I don't really worry about it. And I think that's like a pretty like in the long span of history, that's pretty historically normal. Like a lot of like great scientists of the past were Christians. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know. I, I pretty much assume that the way the world is, is consistent with what we know about God and the way that he made it. And yeah. Yeah. There's sometimes that we, we, we assume a certain thing. So people back in the day maybe assumed that like God made the earth at the center of the world, but that's not like yeah. a strict like, that's not like the word of God. Like, and then God said, I put the earth in the exact center of the universe. And then when you learn that, yeah. you're like, oh no, that's like something that we, we had assumed was true, but yeah. turns out not to have been true. And then when we think about it, you know, when you then grow up without that assumption, it's like, it's not bothersome. Like I was never bothered when I saw a model of the solar system as a kid, because yeah. like, it turns out to be quite compatible with Christianity. <laughs> well. I mean, I, I don't know if you listen to a Bohans podcast, but I have not yet. Not yet. I have recently, and I, let me tell you, I, I, I was quite inspired by Arthur Brooks's um, talk. Yeah. And about how faith is an important, is one of the four pillars of having a meaningful and happy life. And I remember asking him, like, well, I can't pay the ticket to admission. Um, and I'm like, I don't believe in God in the same way, like, Every, every, regardless of what you believe, like you look, you must look at other religions and be like, that's pretty, that's, that's pretty out there, you know, um, <laughs> some more than others, but yeah, some more than others, you know, like, uh, you know, like I, I used to have these two Nepalese guys who I used to live with when I was living in Germany and they were talking about, you know, like Ganesh and he's like this dude with like the elephant on his head and stuff. Um, and he sort of, you think that's, you, I have a sort of similar belief to it, but yeah. I, have started going to church um so i am i don't even know what i i don't, I don't have a term for it but i describe myself as non-spiritual religious because if we have like a two by two quadrant on these things lots of people are non-religious non-spiritual our atheists our theists are spiritual and religious lots and lots of people more than ever before are spiritual but right. not religious and then there's the hidden quadrant religious but not spiritual uh, so I am there. I haven't told the pastor yet that I don't believe, um, but I know what I will say if he asks, which is that I believe, you know, I'm a big, I, I've, I believe that Jesus definitely lived um, and that his teachings of how to treat one another uh, are worth listening to and being a, in a community of people who 
care about that and who put these values essential to their life is something that I'd like to be part of. Um, I just can't really get around the, as Bill Mark calls it, you know, the talking snake in the tree is the, um, it's just a bit too much for me to uh, right. get buy into. Um, and hopefully, you know, and so far I've found it a, a positive experience. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to say I'm just trying to like hack into like meaning uh, by going the sideways round. But after reading uh, J.D. Vance's book, um, yeah. he, he talks about that, he, that one of the problems that affects people in like rural Appalachia is even though they're very, there's a lot of people who are very religious, self-described, they do not, there's very little participation in formal church-based activities. And in fact, it's like, it's lower where he grew up than it is in San Francisco, which is considered, you know, the plight of atheism in the United States. Um, And you've just talked about even a few times that as, you know, a member of your church community, you get a community benefit from it. Yeah. Which is positive, I'm guessing. Am I <laughs> yeah. being a tourist or an intruder or am, am, is, am I doing the right, am I doing like a terrible thing? Maybe that's not. No, not at all. I don't think so. So, I mean, one is that like, I think a lot of people with faith are excited to share it and talk about it. And so, I, yeah. you know, I've had this conversation with a number of people where they're like, well, I'm curious and like checking it out, but I don't want to be like a, a zoo creature. And like the whole point of like, you know, gospel means like good news, right? Which is that like, we're excited to tell people about it. And that doesn't mean that we only tell people about it who we like pre-commit to like agreeing yeah. to everything on like a forum, you know, yeah. it's like, a, I don't know, come check it out. Maybe you'll like it, maybe you won't. Um, I think that the divide between like, so Christianity traditionally is like a very faith forward religion where like your, your personal beliefs have a lot of stock and those are sort of like yeah. upstream of your actions. And I think, you know, a conversation I was having with Shlomo um, at the last in-person weekend was sort of how that differs from Judaism, where Judaism is much more like an actions first. It's like, it's, it's sort of your, like, it's orthopraxic. It's like what you do makes you yeah. a Jew. Um, at least, I don't, I, I don't want to speak for all people, but this is what I've heard. Um, so I, I think what you're describing is sort of more of like an orthopraxic view of religion, where like you go and you participate. Um, and maybe the belief will follow at some point, maybe it won't, but that's like less central to how you see it? Is, yeah. is that, am I understanding you right? Yeah. And I also think that there's a sort of a scale of it. Like when I sort of sit in the pews um, and they're, they're, you know, and I hear the stories, I feel like there's a whole lot of responses to it. For some people who are like, yeah, this is 100% what went down. And people are like, the way I sort of, the way I was always explained was these are stories which are, which are trying to explain the world, which is hard to explain in other ways. Yeah. Um, particularly in the mystical stuff. Um, I mean, there's many takes on this, right? So like, yeah. I think St. Paul in like the, I think it's Corinthians. He says like, you know, if these things aren't true, like if Jesus didn't actually like rise from the dead, then the yeah. quote is like, we're of all men most to be pitied. You know, cause we're out here like telling ourselves this stuff and we're just, it's just like a cope, you know, it's just a total lie. Yeah. So he, he at least pushes back against that. But I don't, I, that being said, like, I know a lot of people who definitely agree with what you're saying, you know, yeah. that like, there's a lot of wisdom in these stories, even we don't think them to be literally true. Yeah. So there's, there, I think there's definitely a divide. And that's what a lot of people would cast as like theologically liberal versus theologically conservative, which doesn't really track politics at all. But it's sort of like a how, 
willing you are to accept things as like wisdom and metaphor versus like literally true. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And what your comment before about how Judaism is definitely, there's more behaviors and custom and, uh, events built into it than, you know, as you said, like a faith forward, the faith forward's great because it makes it more, far more scalable. <laughs> like, yeah. No, it's, it's true. Just, it's true. You know, you rock up, you rock up to the new world and you're just like, Hey, yeah, particularly Protestantism, you know, right? Like yeah. you, there's like no apparatus you need, you know, it's yeah. like, just need a book and you're good. You, you're good to go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah. Um, one of my um, favorite words, which you've uh, dropped a few times is the term cope or massive cope. <laughs> and I kind of love, I kind of like this, like, um, you know, the, the mean cope and seed. What do you think one of the biggest copes that people do, have at the moment that you see? in day-to-day life Ooh, this is gonna be mean whatever it is um yeah i mean i think like a big cope that people have just across the board is sort of like denying themselves agency a little bit where like you know people get this it's like oh the incentives are wrong or like oh the boomers dealt us a bad hand or yeah you know yada yada that like the world is so messed up we can't yeah we can't live the good life and like I don't want to discount the role of incentives because obviously they do matter. Like you can make a space that's, you know, for like people considering having kids, you can make it easier or harder, but on another level, like you're like your own agent, like you're your own human being, you can make your own choices and you're ultimately like not a slave to incentives. Like you have like a a will and a, so that, I guess that's a very broad cope, but whenever people like sort of deprive themselves of agency in their own, like description of the world, that seems like a cope to me. No, I think one of the, um, Francis, one of the guys from trigonometry, one thing I, uh, things he said, which I quite like is the antidote to wokeness is to build something. Um, and that doesn't have to be a company. It could even just be like getting fit and going to the gym. And then you'll be like, Hey, I've been able to do even in this small area of my life, I've gone be able to squat a hundred pounds or 200 pounds. And I'd be able to build that through my own agency and that isn't being taken away from me by, you know, the alt-right or the boomers or, you know, the filibuster, that's something that I can sort of control and hopefully can expand from there. Yeah. And because at the end of the day, like if we're responsible for anything, we're just responsible for our own actions, right? Like you can't control the state of the world or like what happens to trade policy or any of that, but you can like, I don't know, try to do the best you can with your time and then see how it all turns out. I think I'm a big believer that the uh, philosophy gets a bad rap of a lot of like navel gazing. Um, and yeah. there are some really terrible philosophers, particularly the French ones. Um, and that's nothing against France. I love France, but like it's a hotbed <laughs> of like terrible ideas. Um, but, um, but one of the, I mean, my, I think there's, I, I'm a big believer that there's only two philosophical questions. And if I had to choose between them, I could easily pick one. And the two are, what is a just society? And the big one is, how should we spend our time? Um, And it seems to me that, yeah, there is certainly a lot of um, outward, outward criticism. And maybe perhaps that is based on, you know, Jordan Peterson's thing is he's like, he sees a lot of people neglect responsibility. And you're someone who's taken on responsibility 
a lot of it at a young age. Um, and it seems to provide, I'm guessing it has provided you a bit of an antidote. I guess you, like, do you feel like you live a meaningful life? Oh, totally. Yeah, I'm very grateful. I like, I really enjoy my life. I appreciate it a lot. Um, I, I think about this a little bit like, I think a lot of people are afraid to sacrifice freedom, which I think ties back to why people don't like or are reticent to have children because you like, you yeah. lose a lot of freedom, which is certainly true. Yeah. Um, but in my mind, like freedom is something like monopoly money a little bit. You know, it's like you start out life with a lot of freedom, like almost limitless freedom, especially once you're 18. But you have to spend yeah. it on something. Like if you end the game with Monopoly money, you don't win Monopoly. Or maybe you do in yeah. Monopoly. But like you do. ultimately you Yeah. Oh, okay, bad but game. You, but like you, No, but but you win Monopoly. You don't win um Monopoly is a, is is nested within a wider game. Well, some sort of game where you like want to turn something else into points. And like responsibility, like taking on responsibility is ultimately like what's yeah. meaningful, you know? Like you if you just end your life with a ton of freedom. Like, you know, yeah. like not getting married or like not entering any, any relationships gives you more freedom. Like not having kids gives you more freedom, not like starting yeah. things. Like you have a lot of freedom, but that's not really how you want to end. Yeah. Like that's not where you want to end up. That's just sort of a, an intermediate state in my mind. So I think that the, the way I sort of think about it is this, the, the idea of going from freedom from to freedom to. Because as yeah. kids, we're all like, you like, can't do this, you can't do that. And then you're 18, you're like, oh, shit, yeah, how good. I can, like, drive and I can, like, imbibe substances and I can, like, hook up with, like, randoms and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, you're like, I'm going to give all that up in exchange for this. But this is better than, you know, the panoply of everything else. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's wise. Oh, good. Um, time-wise, how about we just go through the rapid, rapid round, um, and I'll let Sounds you great. get on, get on with your day. What's the worst bit of advice you've ever been given? Uh, this is small, but, um, my advisor freshman year talks me out of taking real analysis and I regret that to this day. All my friends are in that class and I really wish I'd taken it. Are you going to teach your kids the code? Yes. Oh, good. Um, what always makes <laughs> you smile? Um, I mean, right now my toddler, he's hilarious. Um, he's started talking about his emotions. So every now and then I'll tell him something and it just muttered to himself, grumpy emotion. That always makes me smile. Um, what culture would you wish you were if you went American? That's tough. Cause it feels like something you have to make with very little information. Cause you don't really know yeah. like what it is, but I really, really like Sichuanese food. Um, so I've been cooking a lot nice. of that recently and you know, that's, I guess that's what the first thing that comes to mind just because the food is so good. Uh, why do, why do people distrust institutions? Cause they're opaque and they're powerful. I think people are naturally don't like authority and institutions are like representations of authority. So there's sort of an intrinsic Would rebellion like, that manifests. Would you like your children to be scientists? No, not really. Um, I already understand science. Way cooler if they do something I don't understand and then tell me about it. Well, like pick up like TikTok stars. Mm -hmm. Something different. Find <laughs> your own right. And, and my final question, it's the uh, one I sort of always end on, is that you're a high achieving person in multiple facets of your life. And one of the things that requires you to be a high performer is to do things that you don't want to do. What are some of the internal strategies and motivations that you use to achieve, to do things that you don't want to do? 
Um, well, I think one is just thinking about like the outcome, like, you know, temporal pain for eternal gain or like long-term gain is a good thing. Yeah. That's part of what makes us human and not animals, you know, back to sort yeah. of the dune idea. Um, and then another one is just to sort of let it grow and stress until you're more afraid of not doing it than you are about doing it. So that's sort of the infinite jest thing. People don't jump out of burning buildings because they stop being afraid of heights. It's because they get more afraid of the fire. So that's sort of grim, but I think that works in a lot of contexts. As your baby's like crying gets louder and louder, you just like, oh, <laughs> I'm more God. afraid of like this baby than I am of like not sleeping. So <laughs> Corin, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoy it. Yeah. See you next week. See you there.